Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Trampling Hall podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. Trampling Hall, as you probably know by now, is a lecture series. It takes place uh, usually in Toronto at a bar. Uh, people give lectures on all kinds of topics, but the one restriction is that they cannot speak on subjects on which they are professionally expert. After each lecture, we take questions from the audience. This is the Trampling Hall podcast, which means it's like that, but it's a podcast. Um, the way that that works is uh, our lecture selector extraordinaire, Kate Bars, goes through our vast lecture archives, and for every episode, she chooses one lecture uh, for you to enjoy or, or not enjoy it's really up to you um uh, if, if, if you do like it, though, I will tell you this. You should come uh, check out the show in Toronto, the live show. Uh, get on our email list. You can find out about it if you live in Toronto. If you don't live in Toronto, why don't you live in Toronto? Look around where you live. It's, it's, it's really nice here. You might like it. Um, anyhow, and now here is the lecture for our current episode. The topic is urban strategies for howling into the void. And the lecturer is Sam Cotter. <laughs> Thank you, Misha. Thank you, Amy. Um, a few weeks ago, I was sitting on my stoop, and I was just kind of not thinking of anything. I was just letting my brain kind of, well, just enjoying a moment of nothing at the end of the day. And it was really nice. And two teenagers who were having some kind of electric, psychedelic experience came wandering down the block. And one of them just looked to the heavens and screamed, reality is a construction of society. <laughs> and then the other one said, brought to you by Kellogg's. And uh, I took a measure of satisfaction from this, and I saw it as a performance. And it was a performance because they're in a peopled urban context, and doing that kind of action, there will be an audience. Maybe it wasn't me as a targeted audience, but there will be an audience. And I realized that they were in some ways kind of unconsciously, maybe, attempting to just curse the powers that be, to find a release, and to just take or say, like, you control my fate and I don't like it, or, like, I don't subscribe to your shit world. Um, in, like, in retrospect, thinking about Howling Into the Void, I kind of fit them into the Ginsbergian model, which I'll describe later. But first, uh, what is Howling Into the Void? Uh, I'm not sure it's a necessarily a vocal phenomenon, although that can certainly be a part of it, but it's uh, removing yourself from the direct context of everyday life, usually involving a measure of introspection before re a resounding cathartic ritual in which you curse the powers that be, all that is around and greater than you, and controls your life. 
And at its best, it has a bereaving effect, emptying the howler of trivial concerns and affording the perspective and uh, acknowledging limitations and ultimately finding a more distant approach to happiness. Uh, do I believe in it? Maybe. Uh, when I started thinking about it, I thought I did not believe in it, and then I realized that I myself perhaps had a time of howling in the void around the age of 18, and it was a very transformative experience, and I became a lot more comfortable with myself and happy. So that was good, and then I pitched the idea to Amy, and she didn't think she had one, and then later realized she too had howled into the void and had her experience. And maybe that's why we're such great, well-adjusted people. Um, <laughs> there's obviously no literal history of howling into the void, as it's more or less, or at least the way I see it, an essentially human action that urbanization has simultaneously escalated the need for and made it a lot harder to achieve. Um, perhaps at once the most romantic, most traditional, and certainly most popular uh, form of Howling in the Void comes in this figure of the wanderer. Uh, you know, it's deeply tied into cultural mythology from, you know, Christ in the desert to Thoreau at Walden, Grizzly Adams in the mountain, Tom Thompson in Algonquin Park, pretty much anybody in a Werner Herzog film. And uh, <laughs> society's full of examples of these men in the wilderness, solo sailors, lone Bedouins, explorers, mountain climbers, etc., that kind of go out to, like, leave all the junk of the city behind and <laughs> take on the wilderness. Um, so, uh, I think this figure really came into prevalence in our Western imagination during the Industrial Revolu Revolution. During uh, increased urbanization, Western Europe and North America kind of countered that with romanticism and pastoralism, kind of using the natural sublime as a foil for the fast-paced urban world. It's an era that gave us figures like Friedrich's Wanderer, Caspar David Friedrich, the painter. It's like a figure like that in front of a great <laughs> expanse. And we put our, substitute ourselves in for him. I know, we all probably know the painting. The Byronic Hero and Wordsworth and Coldridge published lyrical ballads in this time. Uh, I'm going to read a quick passage from Wordsworth's Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, which was published in 1798 in which he has just finished describing his need to visit this place to escape his urban existence, leave behind his baggage from the city, and kind of, he lets it out and then drinks in the sublime void, saying, the mind that is within us, so impressed with quietness and beauty, so freed with lofty thoughts, that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us. <clears throat> so, for this wanderer, there's a pilgrimage, and it's not necessarily one with a destination. The landscape itself has a tabula rasa effect, where, when immersed in it, it simultaneously gives way to introspection and emptying. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of says in an easily digestible and quotable passage that's also extremely cheesy, uh, and motivational and uplifting, so maybe we'll all enjoy it. Plunge into the sublime sea, dive deep and swim far. You shall come back with new self-respect, new power, advanced experience that shall explain and overtake the old. Uh, so for these people, Emerson, Wordsworth, Friedrich, and the like, howling into nature's sublime is a moment that jettisons personality and history in favor of vision, uh, of a vision of reality that remains obscure in everyday life. Emerson himself said that when experiencing 
of the sublime, he ceases to recognize the name of a friend or brother, that there's a shift in consciousness and you come back wiser. So this catharsis lies in realizing that things are far bigger than oneself and expelling life's problems is trivial and small. Um, this model for howling is kind of problematic in the way in which it's like tied to the machismo of being the first and only on a landscape. It's got a very male history. But there is something to be said for the ideas of solitude and self-confrontation that come with it. Um, I don't think it can really exist in this city. Here, like uh, much of the highly developed world, nature is not really a wilderness, more a significant social achievement. Uh, in the urban city, I'd say our collective interest, or some people's interest, in decay and the, transaction, uh, the transgressive action of entering abandoned buildings, etc., is perhaps where this model is today. It's half decent, I suppose. It's uh, a way of proclaiming that I exist as independent, I function outside the rules of the city. It's still very much tied to beauty and the sublime and about losing and finding oneself. But let's look at another model that emerged a little later. It's the Ginsburg model, the Kerouac model, standing on the apex of the roof at midnight and howling at society, the world around you and the city. Here, the void is a peopled place, uh, but, the peop but we take for granted that the people neither care uh, or matter, and that they are unwilling or unable to hear you over the omnipresent hum of the city. So it's still an introspective model, but it's really more reactionary. And if we look at a couple figures that someone like Ginsburg describes in his Howl, 1955, most famous work, we can see that uh, these are the people in the city existing among the rest of us, uh, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on the tenement roofs, who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who threw their watches off the roof to cast their ballad with eternity, with eternity outside of time, and alarm clocks fell on their heads every day for the next decade. Um, this howling brings to mind Edvard Munch's The Scream, which its German title actually translates to The Scream of Nature. Here I read it that the world is screaming, and this figure is the only one listening, the Ginsburg figure. The Ginsburgian howler then, feeling small and insignificant, screams back and howls in harmony with this cacophony. Uh, it, it's less cleansing than the other model, but it revels in its dirtiness. It's less bourgeois. It seems like a way of life, stop and go catharsis. And the isolation comes from the belief that everything is wrong and I'm the only one that can see it. Um, <laughs> I think this model, though, in our current time, has been co-opted in a rather problematic way. It's been co-opted by the internet age, in my view. A friend of mine refers to this kind of internet ranting the, in Ginsbergian prose as farting into the void, but I don't even think it's that. Um, it's dissociative. We're filtering and summarizing the language in a mode that ultimately seeks approval when we write on when we write ludicrous uh, blogs, Facebook rants, etc. Um, it's specific and generally fo focused on minutia of every day. Even on a larger scale, it's focused on the symptoms rather than the abstracts. We're putting a face to our feelings, where traditional howling is an ex exploration of the feelings themselves and letting them go. Uh, there's a direct context 
we're sharing it with the specific community that's a targeted attack and we're either preaching to the converted or the unconvertible usually. Um, finally, it's tied to the belief that it can make things better for me. Somehow, by complaining, I will feel better. But a part of that is there's no release. In the real howling, the not virtual howling, uh, the feel, we send our feelings away and replace them with calm and emptiness. The online howling gives way to a feedback loop or uh, uh, of likes, shares, favorites, etc. And there's constant collisions, extrapolations, points and counterpoints, and generally very little thinking going on. But the biggest problem is that I think it's yelling into the wrong void. Yes, it's yelling into a void, but it's not yelling into the void. Um, what it is yelling, I believe, is into an internal metaphysical void, an emptiness inside us that we seek to fill, and as we yell and complain, we actually make larger. Um, it keeps our problems and the problems of others closer to our mind and lulls us into a begrudging complacency rather than any kind of catharsis. Uh, Surrounding ourselves with these misguided rantings, preoccupations, and feelings of want, desire, and isolation keeps us from ever being fully present, and thus we can never achieve, achieve full release. And now I'm going to borrow a quote and idea from Joan Didion to kind of explain this feeling, uh, which is that what we do is we make the act of wanting a moral imperative to become part of the thin wine of hysteria sounding across the land. And this thin wine of hysteria is obviously a problem, and it brings me back to my teenage howlers and what to do with them. Uh, where should they go, and who should they howl with, or should they howl by themselves, and is there a place to howl? Maybe they've tried the other examples and decided that my stoop is about as good a place to howl as any, and that's that. Um, thank you. Sam Potter, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are there any questions? Any questions? Oh, I see a hand. Yes, over there. Yes, you, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I call you sir? Are you a lady? I'm oh, sorry. You, man. Um, so you talked about historical figures like in the late 1700s to sort of pre-internet era. Where do you think women were howling during that time? So the question is, where were women howling in this, in this pre-internet era? Yes, this is a question I struggled with a lot in preparing for this lecture because ultimately we don't know the history of howling from 
howlers unless they have been canonized through other art, through forms like poetry and painting were the ones I primarily referenced. But I think there are certainly are women howlers, and there certainly were in that time as well, but it's a less documented howling, and I think maybe this kind of man in the wilderness mystique doesn't, doesn't cut it for everyone, but I'm, I, I'm unable to, uh, my, my research was unable to so unearth. you didn't come up with any. You were like, I'm gonna try, were you like, I'm gonna I try did. to toss I one did. in there, and then you were like, ah, nope, couldn't find any? I did, in that period. Okay. There was some kind of, yeah. So you, didn't, you did not find any? Well, it's like, I didn't want to associate hysteria with howling. Like, sure. That's like, it's a terribly problematic time. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so it turns out it was, so it was a bad time for women for other reasons, <laughs> not totally related to your thesis, yeah. but that that, that, affect, that affected it. So no, so we don't, did, well, did you have anyone in mind who you thought, or do you have examples in your mind? Right. I was just thinking about that. So there might have been more female howling in the in the in the in the in the private sphere. Yeah. Does that that is entirely possible. Right. I I kind of had to I still jumped around a lot. I felt like I had to keep it to some kind of abstract external void. Sure, no, um, it's yeah, that was it was howling yeah, into I the think, void. It I wasn't howling it into the have, home. It could have been an, an internal sphere or an external one, but I just feel like it's Lots of research. Yeah, for, for sure, you can only look. You can only look so much. And, and I'm just like, oh yes, yes, you sir, yes. Uh, that was brilliant. Thank that you. was amazing. <laughs> just to start off with that. Uh, so it seemed like you compared Thoreau and people like Ginsburg, who had their written word and had their coffee shops, to everyone on the internet. And what I'm wondering is, is there is that a fair comparison? So the question. So the, to, to well, recap, that he just wanted. He said that the, the, the talk was brilliant, but then wanted to know if it was fair to compare like these great individuals to everybody on the internet. Is that the well, I'd like to, I don't necessarily read the people I was comparing so much as the ideas they were discussing. Like, I don't think the life of Ginsburg or the life of Thoreau is what I was really talking about. It's the romanticized ideal they project. And like Wordsworth, for example, has a wanderer character that appears in several of his works. And he says in the preface to one of his books, you know, if I wasn't an educated urban man, I would be this character. I would be right. this lone peddler in the mountain. But instead, he romanticizes it. So I'm kind of going with more of a cultural fantasy of the wanderer. And then it's kind of hard to find. So I'm going to break your rule and ask it. Go ahead. Uh, there's, it's fine. There, I'm powerless. What? <laughs> So is that, is that figure, so what you're saying is that maybe somewhere on the internet, right, so no, I think that's fair. That, that question is like, maybe somewhere on that internet, on the internet, that there, there is something comparable to that figure. Maybe it's not just every single person on Facebook or, or every blogger or whatever, but maybe there, do you think that that might exist somewhere out there? That maybe there are people, is it possible to do that effectively online or is anyone doing it? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is. I was more kind of thinking of the actual act of howling and not at the cult-like status, but of course if you're going back to like the, you know, the 18th century, you need to talk about through what's documented. So I think maybe I got a little confusing there. I'm sure like, you know, through whatever form, but I'm not really sure the internet is the ideal ground for my abstract howling, like my abstract howling of being like a lone reflexive space of catharsis and release that's undocumented. 
And unfortunately, I had to call on documentation to talk about an undocumented thing. Right. Yeah. No. That's yeah. When you yeah, lone reflective undocumented place is not not what the internet was built built to yeah. be. I don't think it's hard hard for that. Was there any other questions or anything else? Oh yes. I'm sorry. It's so dark. Yes. Yes. Do you think uh, musicians and like lyricists are ever howling into the void, or does the fact that there's an audience create that? Right. So what about musicians and lyricists? Well, I think they can document the chronicles of Howling into the Void, much the same way poets and artists can. But I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure their performance can be Howling into the Void. They can be Howling into the Void, perhaps not on this stage, but on one they find external. Like, what do you mean? Like that they're like, like that think, they're, when they're I alone, think, okay, or are they yeah. are they literally like think, going and like setting up their gear on a mountaintop and being like, why not? Screw you, the river. Like, yeah. like is it that <laughs> like, kind of thing? Or are they I mean, like, I think they could certainly do that. They could certainly right. just go. Uh, you know, it's like I don't think of like Ginsburg's howl itself as howling into the void, just howling to the right because he wrote yeah. he wrote for an audience, and but perhaps. So what's the part that maybe I, maybe I'm not understanding it as well as I thought I did? Which is so what's the part that's the howling into the void when you talk about when you that. talk about like Ginsburg or, or Coleridge or Emerson or and so, like they're all writing they're all writing for an audience but there's something yes, that you're doing but, I'm, but I'm that's not the howling sorry. into the void no no that's the cool. howling in the void Wordsworth and Coleridge is that archetypal man going into the mountain and screaming into nature right what I think the Ginsbergian model is in the city being on like the top of your roof howling into the city on right. the deaf ears of the masses as opposed to by yourself in the wilderness. I see. So the thing that they describe. So where's so when the, the old romantics just not what they're doing is not howling they're writing, but what they're describing is yes. this howling into the void. This person who goes into nature and just just screams out into the mountains or whatever. Yeah. And then what Ginsburg, not what he is, but what he describes is yes. someone doing the same thing from the rooftops. Yeah. To in this the sort city, of unlistening, yeah. this unlistening masses, urban yeah. urban void or whatever. Yeah. So it's not at that okay, I see. I'm, I'm okay. I'm glad I'm glad I've cleared that up. Okay. Anything else? Uh, yes, you all the way in the back. Yes. Um, would you be comfortable sharing with us your moment? Thank you. Yeah, what's your moment? I think you sort of teased us with that, but then we never had it. What's your what do you consider to be your howling into the void? <laughs> My moment of howling into the void was I had kind of lived back and forth between uh, rural Nova Scotia and Toronto throughout my kind of adolescence. And when I finally had no attachments to this, to rural Nova Scotia and was happy with my urban existence at about age 18, I took a job in a remote place in Nova Scotia, not having a driver's license, not having anything, and lived by myself alone in the woods, inventing a new system of electric fence. Um, <laughs> what, 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 and, okay, we'll come back to that. And I worked, I thought about lecturing on it. Uh, and I worked about six days a week through like the winter, everything. Wait, was, what, what was your, was your job, your job wasn't inventing the electric fence. That was a part of my job. Really? They were like, here, go here and invent a new electric fence and get back well, to I had, us? I had an idea, I had an idea okay. for how it might work, though no expertise <laughs> in electric fencing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they believed in my vision. Um, <laughs> Wait, so is this really true? You went to a company and you were like, I, I, okay, all right, just, I'm, I'm, there's so much I want to know here, but okay, so you're in the woods. <laughs> I'm trying to slow myself down. You're in the woods and you're designing this electric fence. Well, I started out in farming and then I pitched this electric fence and it right. flew. I had like <laughs> six months to complete it. Um, but I was working alone in the fields and it was like slowly breaking like, me down and okay. I very rarely have social interactions. I lived alone, had like a wood stove, etc. Oh wow. Once a week we'd go into the town to get groceries and right. maybe once a month see friends. And right. 
that was my moment of howling. So that this was the real withdrawal. It kind of changed me as a person. I was a very where okay. So I see the void in. So again, just to get a clear picture. So thank you, thank you for that question. So so, so, so that's the void. You're you're there. You're living like 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 Thoreau. You're off in the you know you're off in the wilderness. Every once in a while they come into town for some soup, and then you go back to the wilderness or whatever. But the, so that's the void. And then what's the howling? Where is it? Is the howling just the being present there, or is the? Um, I think before I went there, I was a very anxious person, and being there, it made my kind of anxieties reach a certain fever pitch. Right. And then eventually. They just cleared away. Really? Like letting them get so bad. And what did that? that what was that I like? I became completely comfortable with myself. What was that like? Fun? What's that like? Like just being in the wilderness and just how? Like what would? How would that manifest itself? Would you just like? What would? What would that be? I'm, gonna, I'm trying to bring you back. I'm trying to undo all the good work that you did in one short question. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was a, a physical how. More just eventually. No, but we would like. Wait, no, so go on. No, no, go. <laughs> no, I want to know what. The, I guess you're moving on. I want to know what that anxiety was like. Like when, when you say that anxiety being in the woods, would you like, would you like wake up and like just be like, like scared that you were gonna die, or would you wake up and be like, this fence idea is stupid. I'm wasting that my was, life. That, that was <laughs> that like, was a part of it, but also just kind of like removing myself from any sort of social situation, kind of changed the way it was to go back and then begin to kind of pick and choose anew and realize, oh, that was a f kind of a foolishness and waste of time. Like, I want to be productive. I want to get things done. Like, I want to hang out only with people I like and think are smart instead of, like, <laughs> you know. Country people. No. No, I mean, like, I lived in the city. I lived in the city before right. and was kind of unhappy with things were going, and I made this grand escape for myself. And then... I see. So you went, in the, you went out in the country, you experienced, the, you experienced both the solitude and this anxiety that accompanied that, that yeah. this tremendous anxiety. And maybe, is that, the, is that the howling? That, the howling, is that the anxiety or is that? I guess so. I mean, I, yeah, okay, maybe. It wasn't one <laughs> momentous, I ran into the field, on my, threw myself down on my knees and let out a moan. It was more that over a certain stretch of time, it built to a critical peak yeah. and then resulted in a full calmness. I had exercised okay. my, Past demon. So that's very powerful. And you came out a transformed person. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's pretty good. All right. That's awesome. Um, I, I feel almost silly asking for another question, but because I was, but I, I think I will anyhow. Is there anything else I would like to know? After that very inviting framing. Oh, you all the way in the back. Yes, you sir. Yes. What was Amy's howling? What was Amy, Amy's howling? Story? You're gonna have. You're gonna have to ask her. <laughs> Do you, is that, do, do you know what it was? Did she tell you? Yeah, she told me what it was. You didn't tell us. She, I, she did not ask me and you to keep it secret, or she wouldn't have told you. Is Amy here? Yeah, Amy's in the back there. Can he tell us their story? Um. <laughs> I take that as it sounds like a yes. Yeah, it sounds like a yes. It's like it's going to be a bit boring and long. I, I had a similar wilderness experience, shall we say. So you also went into the wilderness? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> There's also anxiety. Such as, you know, snakes and scorpions and stuff. And a lot of solitude. All right. And then I, you know, I came out the, you know. The calm, the, the calm person you are today. And I, know, I don't know you well, but I know, know Amy. I can attest she's pretty calm. I would say. Okay, so basically, just the, so basically, she just had the same, the same story. Yeah, she has the same story. But with scorpions. Is that right? What? You did not design an electric fence. Okay, but, but otherwise similar. Okay, oh, so there, there's your answer. Not, not maybe not as satisfying as you'd hope, but, but okay. We'll go to yes, yes, you, ma'am. Um, 
Did you build the electric fence? I did. I did. And you other did. people have adopted the system. People have actually used it? It's true. Oh my god. <laughs> I know this is not the thesis of your talk at all, but it's you'd be surprised how few inventors speak at Trampoline Hall. What did, what did, what did, so it just says, what did you do? What was the fence? What is new the about basic it? basic principle was that with any current in an electric fence, like alternating wires, it's like a ground yeah. and then a live. Yeah. And so the current goes in and out. But for a small creature like a raccoon, that doesn't work very well. Because you just touch one wire. And you may not know this. It was a winery. And what, sorry? It, this was a winery. I should contextualize okay, it's this. a winery. Okay. And raccoons can't digest grape enzymes, so they can eat all night. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> th this was a very specific problem. Um, <laughs> And uh, so my idea was to have a dead ground wire running along in a place where they would step on it and then the live wire would be more at face height. Because if the live wire touches the ground, your whole fence is shot. Oh, okay. So you so, so you space them so you sort of space them differently specifically yeah, for raccoons. For raccoons. And it involved having a ground wire on the ground. Oh, the ground which people, yeah. That's, which that's people surprising didn't do. no one had thought of that. Yeah. Like, like, you know, where should you put the ground wire and no one thought <laughs> on, the, on ground. the ground. That was your you're like it's so obvious. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're like, and you're like, I need a few months in the wilderness to think about this. <laughs> do you think that I, I? Do you think there's any connection between that, like between that invention and the, the nature experience that you had? Like, do you think there's something? I mean, that I got some electric them? shocks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> did you scream? Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> and then did you feel really calm afterwards? Oh yeah. Right. I think we solved it. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Uh, uh, I think there's a question. Did you have? Did you? Have, you have, have, do anyone else have a question? Oh yes, you, ma'am. Yeah. Um, at the end, you mentioned that. Yeah. How can there be a wrong void? Like, the, qu well. the question is, the people, okay. are screaming in the, people on the internet screaming into the wrong void as the person in the front row, and the person in the front row seems somewhat indignant that there could be a wrong void. Um, Which seems a fair question. Well, okay. I'm going to say that in traditional notions of screaming in the void, it's an exercise of making things from inside of you leave you. But I believe that in the internet screaming, or whatever you want to call it, you're, you're not really screaming into an external void, though it may seem that way. You're screaming into an internal void of wanting and emptiness inside yourself. And the more you scream, the bigger it gets, and the more people respond to it, and the, it, it circles around you, and instead of leaving, it inflates. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> you want more? You want more than that? Wait, wait, no, did you have more that you wanted to know? I was so satisfied. When you say the void, you know, it seems like one thing. Right, you're like, there's, but you're like, there's just one void. But now we all have little void inside. Oh, we all definitely have void. We all want. <laughs> oh, you've just, you just didn't know that there was a void inside of her. Oh, you, you, life you, is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should end on that, that very, very sad lesson. <laughs> the void is in us all. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Connery, ladies and gentlemen, the boy.
Thanks for listening. Trampoline Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was chosen by Amy Langstaff. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Our coordinating producer and lecture selector extraordinaire is Kate Bars. If you enjoyed the podcast, uh, you can help us out by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps a lot. You can also come check out the show in Toronto. I am Misha Globerman. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.